Beloved, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 9. And as we get back into Romans 9 this morning after two weeks of being out of it, um, I, I debated just reading, you know, the first 29 verses. But I'm going to rely upon your keen memories in order to... No, I'm not. Let's stand together. The second thought where I'm not. Let's stand together and, we're, you know, we're just going to read the first 29 verses of this text. Paul writes, and remember, he's writing this after he's been describing for us the remarkable blessings of the salvation that God has accomplished for us in Christ. He writes these words. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They're Israelites. And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very same place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Man, let's pray together. You can be seated. Heavenly Father, I am in awe. I am in awe of you. I am in awe of your word. I am in awe of the revelation of your character and of your mercy to save wretched sinners like us. Father, if we are honest, we know that there is not a single thing that distinguishes us from all of those upon whom their sins still remain and wrath still remains, except your mercy and your grace and your sovereign election, that's it. We've done nothing, Lord God, to make ourselves worthy in your sight. We've done nothing to commend ourselves to you, our salvation. The sum of it all is attributable to your grace to your mercy, to wretches like us. Lord, as we approach this text this morning, as we consider yet again the wonder of your sovereign freedom over all of your creation and over all of your creatures, God, I am praying and I am pleading with you that you would give me wisdom and that you would just fill me with your spirit and that you would make me an instrument for honorable use in your hands today so that I might proclaim your truth faithfully and accurately and without human innovation. That I would rest entirely upon the revealed word of the living God and add nothing and take nothing away. Lord, your word is life. Your word is truth. Your word is light in the darkness. Your word is pure and good because it comes from you. And so I am praying, Lord God, that you would humble every heart and every mind and every soul in this room under the mighty power of your living word. I pray, Father God, that we would, we would humble ourselves before you and be instructed by you. And God forbid that we should ever try to instruct you. Lord God, speak your word to us today. Give us ears to hear and leave us changed forever, I pray. In Christ's holy name, amen. You know, beloved, we're getting into this text again this morning in Romans chapter 9. And I was thinking about this while, you know, I was just in the last week or so. 
It's remarkable to me that when we look at Romans chapter 9, more than any other, chapters 9 through 11 really, more than any other chapters in the Word of God, people seem to feel the need to express how they feel about these particular chapters. You know, like I'm reading, I'm reading these commentaries and I'm reading these commentators and, and I read things like this. I, I read these, these chapters described as controversial, you know, or, or, or confusing. I, I found even one commentator that said they're absolutely unnecessary. These chapters, what arrogance. What, what unbelievable arrogance to say, you know, Romans chapter 9 through 11, in my humble opinion, is really unnecessary. Like, I don't know how that guy avoided the thunderbolt. You know what I mean? Like, really? I read how it's difficult to understand, how it causes needless turmoil in the hearts of, of people. But then, on the other hand, I read commentators that say, these are some of the most sublime chapters in all of the word of God. They describe for us God in his essence. We behold here the God who truly is and not the God whom we imagine, right? So the question is, which one's right? The guy that says it's unnecessary or it's, you know, confusing or, or the commentators, the theologians who say this is sublime truth. Which one's right? And I would say that your perspective depends on, well, the position of your heart toward God. I would say that that your response to Romans chapter 9 through 11, I think probably boils down to this. Whether you are someone who is willing to humbly be instructed as to the character of God as it is revealed in the word of God, or if you're a person who insists that God conform to your idea of his character before you ever read the word of God, right? And I would say to you, that the difference there is the difference between, if assuming both are professing believers, I would say to you that the difference there is the difference between someone who is wheat and someone who is tare. Someone who is truly a sheep and that deluded soul who thinks they're a sheep and who's truly a goat. We don't have the right to define God according to our own whim and our own desires. You understand that, right? Right? I mean, I think we need to understand that more than we do. See, we live in a world now where you can be a man and say you're a woman. And you expect everybody to go along with that, right? They have to. If you don't go along with that, then you don't, you don't honor my, myself, my inner self that I am. Well, if deluded individuals in our world actually believe that they can redefine who they are and expect everyone to agree, then I would say to you the God who actually is and the one who truly has the right to define himself should be able to define himself in his word. And all we have to say in response is yes and amen. That is who you are, God. That is who you are. Now, why am I saying this to you? I'm not, do, I'm not saying these things to be unnecessarily fractious. I'm not saying these things in order to, you know, unnecessarily cause you to confront some of your bias. Well, yes, I am. I am saying this. I'm saying this, so you must confront some of the biases in your own heart. But I want to say this, and I think it's very important. 
for some reason in Christianity, we have given to people the right, professing Christians, we have given to them the right to redefine God in the way that they want to think of him, but still retain the name and the, 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 the title, if you will, of being a Christian. Something that we would not allow them to do with Christ. Follow with me. If somebody says to you, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, that he rose again on the third day, that he's ascended now into the heaven, and that he is soon to return to display his glory over all peoples, you would say to them, what? You're a Christian, right? Right? But then after making that profession of faith, let's say that person, as they were confronted with the true character of the Lord Jesus Christ in the word of God, all of a sudden took offense to it. And refuse to believe it. Let's say as we move down the road a little bit and we're opening, we're, first Christmas comes around that they're a believer. And the pastor starts talking about the virgin birth of Christ. And they say, mm, well, I believe in Jesus, but I don't believe in his virgin birth. And then the preacher talks about Christ's impeccability, his perfect sinlessness. And that person says, well, I believe Jesus was a truly good man, the greatest man who ever lived and certainly could stand in my place and do for me what I could never do. But I'm not sure I believe he's sinless. And over the, by the way, I was talking to these folks that came by my door the other day and they visited me. And they explained to me that Jesus wasn't really the son of God in the only begotten sense. But he's like a son of God, like, you know, other men and women are sons of God. In fact, he wasn't the son of God from all of eternity. He became the son of God when the spirit of God came upon him at his baptism. And and more than that, I even found out that he's the spirit brother of Lucifer. What would you say to that person? Would you be like, oh, that's okay. You're still a Christian. Is that what you'd say? No. What would you say? Your profession of faith, my friend, was spurious. Because you're believing on a Christ who doesn't exist. You're not believing on the Christ of the scripture, right? Right? Follow with me. There are loads of professing Christians that will say, well, I believe in God. But then they go on to define and describe a God who looks nothing like the God of the Bible. And they take umbrage specifically with the sovereign freedom of God to be God. That God is sovereign over all peoples and sovereign over all humanity and sovereign over every single soul. And that God, by his sovereign covenant love, his steadfast love, chooses for himself out of the lump of fallen humanity those who will be vessels of his mercy and be saved and those who will be left in their sin as vessels of wrath unto destruction. And when we get to that description of God, they say, well, that's not my God. And I could never believe in a God like that. And if that is who God is in Scripture, that is certainly, that is not who God is. What would we say to that person? You know what we say to them? It's okay. You don't have to believe in God's sovereignty. That's something you can work up to. We would never do that with Christ, but we do that with the Almighty God. And I would say to you, we're being intellectually and spiritually dishonest. It may be that Romans chapter 9 
Chapters 9 through 11 exist specifically to draw the line between those who have a God of their imagination and the God of the Holy Bible. Are you hearing me? This is important. This text is important. When we looked at it, I read the whole thing because I wanted you to be reminded of, of where we are here. You know, we have this picture. Paul's just given us this wonderful picture of the salvation that we have received in the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about how, how, how we have, you know, we cannot be possibly separated from the love of God that is in Christ. And that is an awesome truth, right? But on the very heels of that, he acknowledges that there are his brothers and his sisters, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, Israelites, who are outside the covenant of God, who are not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who are who have remained lost. And it's not that he's unaffected by it. It's not that he's just coldly, you know, you know, just resistant and, and doesn't feel deeply the weight of it. It's not like he's like, well, that's just God's business, and he's just coldly, you know, approaching. No, not at all. His heart's breaking for them. His heart's breaking for them. It hurts to see. That there are those that he knows that are yet outside the covenant of grace. And so when we are looking here at this description, this explanation of the sovereign freedom of God in salvation, in the salvation of sinners, understand that it is rooted in and it is coming, it is being written by an apostle whose heart is greatly grieved that there are yet Israelites that are not saved. But he explains why. It's because not all Israel is Israel, right? That not all physical ethnic Israel is spiritual Israel. That not all of the descendants of Abraham by the flesh are actually the spiritual descendants of Abraham, right? And God didn't make a promise to save every last individual Israelite. He made a promise to save his chosen ones, his remnant, right? From out of that fallen nation. And then he uses this description, doesn't he? He describes to us his, his saving sovereign choice in election by presenting to us the pictures of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, right? And he explains to us that Salvation doesn't have to do with your effort and your, 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 your trying to earn merit with God because you cannot do it, right? And as he's going through this description, this explanation of God's sovereignty and his freedom regarding the salvation of sinners, we come to this first question in Romans chapter 9 and verse 14 regarding his sovereign freedom. And it's an honest question. It's one that's asked, honestly, from a position of humility, from a position of faith, because notice that Paul includes himself here, and a desire to really understand the ways of God. In verse 14, he says, what shall we say then? We, he's including himself, Paul is. Is there injustice on God's part? Right? Okay, God is sovereign in salvation, but is, in there, is there any way in which in salvation God acts in an unjust manner? In, in other words, how can God be just and still be sovereign over the salvation of sinners? How can he choose some and not others for salvation? Well, he explains. We saw that all human beings, you know, all human beings deserve hell, right? And the fact 
that any of us are saved by God is an act of sovereign mercy. He's not unjust, God isn't, in showing mercy to some and not to others. In His sovereign and His free election, no one gets treated unjustly. The lost do not get what they don't deserve. It's just that some do, in fact, receive mercy and compassion from God, and they're given, they're given what they have not earned and what they do not deserve. But for God to choose to show compassion to some and not others does not make him unjust. Those whom God, those whom God passes by and leaves in their sin, they receive justice. They receive what they deserve. And in fact, you'll remember, we, we brought the fact that for God to show mercy and compassion to any sinner, it still requires that he be just, right? Like God just can't jettison justice in order to be merciful and compassionate, right? Right? Like he can't ignore other parts, other characteristics, other attributes of himself in order to be merciful and compassionate. And so we know what? Well, we know that for elect sinners, he... He upholds his justice in an extremely costly way, doesn't he? For those to whom he shows mercy and compassion, he upholds justice in an extremely costly way, namely in the sacrificial and atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ. God doesn't ignore the sin of his people when he shows them mercy. Instead, he judges their sin on the head of Christ and he requires payment for that sin by the blood of Jesus shed to pay the debt of our iniquity, right? And everything that God does, He is just. And Paul closes this section by saying, so He has mercy on whomever He wills and He hardens whomever He wills. He has mercy on whomever He wills and He he leaves whoever He wills in their sin and He hardens them for the day of His wrath. He has the right to do it because He's God. And He has sovereign freedom over everything. And this morning we're going to come to the second question here in Romans 9. And it's asked in a decidedly different manner. It's not a question of faith. It's not a question out of sincerity. You know, not all questions are equal, are they? Are they? Like if I say to my wife, are you going to wear that? No, no, now listen. If I say, are you going to wear that? That comes across as you look great, right? But if I say, are you really going to wear that? Not so much, right? Then I want you to see the question that gets asked here is not one of sincerity. In fact, it's arrogant. It's haughty. Look at it with me. Look at it with me starting in verse 19. Paul writes these words. He says, you will say to me then, right? Not we, you. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, beloved, I want you to notice a few things about this question. I want you to notice a few things about this question. The the asker of this question, first of all, this asker that Paul envisions, he's imaginary, but it's somebody, it's the kind of guy that Paul has dealt with before in the past, okay? That's where this comes from. He's heard this objection before when he's talked about the the doctrine of of God's divine sovereignty, right, in in his election. He's heard this before. So this this is a question he's heard before. I want you to notice... I want you to notice that it shifts from we to you, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Now, that might seem subtle, but it's not. 
What Paul is saying is, you know, that last question, I'm all in on that. I can, un- I can understand that question. And that's a question that you can ask out of faith. But this question, no, nah, man, this question is out of order. This is the question of an unbeliever. This is the question of a hardened heart. This is the question of someone who has the intent to put all the blame on God for everything if they are lost. In other words, this is, this, this question is off-putting. It's not asked from a position of humility, but arrogance and self-justification. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, here's what's being asked. If, if everything happens according to God's sovereign plan and purpose, and no one can resist his will, then how can God blame me for my sin? Isn't my sinful condition his fault? Isn't my position as sinner, isn't that God's fault? If I'm not saved, God is to blame, not me. That's what's being said here. And this question's being asked deliberately to call into question God's character and the way that he's handled his sovereignty. You've done a bad job with your sovereignty, God. It's a question that seeks to make God the author of personal human sin so that the person asking the question can be alleviated of all personal responsibility. It's not an honest, faith-filled question at all. It's an effort itself, justification, the effort to excuse personal sin, the effort to excuse personal unbelief and spiritual rebellion, and they lay the blame for all of it at God's feet. To lay the blame for the sinner being eternally lost at God's feet feet it's his fault they're lost that's the heart of the question and of the one asking it it's a prideful question it's an arrogant question now what's remarkable here as we go through the this the rest of this text is that paul will actually graciously give us a remarkable answer to this question he will he'll he'll do that beginning in verse 22 but he won't do it before he first rebukes the very question itself in the person who asks it before he lets them hear what they need to hear. And the reason, again, is because it's not an honest question. It's meant to shift the blame to God. It's not the question of a humble heart, but of a contentious and quarreling soul that doesn't want to accept the truth that we have ruined ourselves by our sin. And that we each deserve God's wrath and that none of us has a right to question how God provides salvation for some, or even His choice, how He comes about His choice of those whom He sovereignly and graciously chooses to grant such a grace. The question is totally out of order. And the reason we know it is because of Paul's initial response. It's a rebuke. Look at it. He says, Who are you, O man? But who are you, O man? To answer back to God. In other words, in essence, Paul is saying, listen, you're not arguing. You don't like what I've just been teaching you. You're not arguing with me. That your, your content, your contention is not with me. Your argument, your fight isn't with me, a mere man. Your fight's with God. Your fight is with God. You're arguing with God. And who do you think you are to talk back, literally to dispute or resist or grumble against God? For the way that he exercises his sovereignty in salvation. Who do you think you are? Who are you to put God on trial? Who are you? That you should stand in judgment upon him. 
You sinful, you, you pretentious and pompous and presumptuous and prideful man. Who do you think you are? You'd have God answer to you. You would have God answer to you. The sovereign Lord of the universe, the one who is the fullness of wisdom and power and majesty and holiness and righteousness and glory. He should answer to you a mere creature of dust. Are you nuts? Are you insane? You're not God's equal. You're in no position to pass judgment on what the Almighty does. God is not under your examination. You're under His. Who do you think you are? You know, when I was growing up, I know not today in our softer America, but when I was growing up, to answer back to my father, I remember the first time I ever heard the words, who do you think you are? And I remember in that moment, I felt like that big. And about three seconds later, my, my cheek stung really badly. Who do you think you are? You know, we live in a world where we let our kids talk back to us. Not all of us. Not all of us allow that, but some of us do. And then we end up with unruly children as teenagers. And then we end up with children that won't submit themselves to the authority of the Word of God. And we wonder what went wrong. Who are you to answer back to God, oh man? Who are you? You are a piece of dirt. You think you have the right to, to, to accuse God? You know, in our vernacular, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Right? For a man to accuse God, to push back against him, to haughtily contend with God in his ways, to call him to account, you know what that is? That is the height of arrogance and irreverence and utter foolishness. And yet people do it all the time. Don't they? People do it all the time. Even professing Christians. Even professing Christians. Beloved, where is the fear of God? Ever think about it? Like, where is the fear of God? Where is the, where is his reverence? Where is his awe? Where is the humility before transcendent greatness and sovereign authority? Where is the fear of God? Even in the church, where is the fear of God? I'm going to tell you what. Paul's rebuke, of course, is meant to put this questioner in his place. But I'm going to be honest. It ought to put all of us in our place. Whether we ask this question, this particular question or not, we need to hear this. When we grumble and we complain and we question God. Who do you think you are? You know what? The breath that you breathe, you breathe at his will. Your heart beats because he wills it. You have food in your belly because he provided it. You have clothes on your back because he gave it to you. You have the gifts that you have because he gave them to you. You have your abilities and your wisdom and this and that. It all came from God. And he gave it to you in the way that he determined to give it. Who are you to answer back to him? Oh, I don't like this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, We begin to speak before we ever stop to consider who we are and whether or not we have a right to speak. Isn't that true? We take up the the cudgels, that's a club, and we take our position and we speak with feeling. God have mercy on us. We don't realize what we're doing. 
The trouble with man, the trouble with self-confident man who stands up full of his 20th century, or in our case, 21st century, knowledge, the great philosopher who's examining God and his ways, the trouble with such a man when he objects with violence to any teaching in the scripture is that he does not realize the truth about himself. Who are you? Realize your smallness. Realize your insignificance. Realize your finite character. Realize your mortality and your sinfulness and your perversity. And realize the smallness of your mind and of your understanding. Amen. Amen. You know, we ought to be. We, 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 we would do well to take to heart the words of Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verse 2 where it says, Be not rash with your mouth. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. How can we stand in judgment on God? How can we? It's arrogance. It's, it's foolishness. How can we elevate our values and our standards and our insights, all of them stained with sin, to a place of judging God and saying to him, you know, God, you used your sovereignty wrongly. You acted in an unwise manner. I think you could have done this better. Our minds can't even begin to fully comprehend his glory and his majesty. And he has to condescend to our level in order for us to even begin to understand him. And we would judge him. We're finite creatures of dust. And that very fact ought to, ought to cause us and warn us to be careful about our assumptions and our presumptions in the realm of the infinite and sovereign God. It is so ludicrous For us to arrogantly question the propriety of God's actions. We've got no right to do so because we're not his equal. We might humbly ask him. We might humbly say, Lord, would you please reveal this to me? But to contend with God and call him to account for his godness is patently absurd. And Paul makes this point very clear. Powerfully, starting in the second half of verse verse 19 when he says this. Look at it. I'm sorry, second half of verse 20. When he says, well, what is molded? Say to its molder. Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now look at what he's saying here. Get this. He's, he's continuing this rebuke by saying this. Look, first he says, who are you to answer back to God? And then he says, look, you need to understand really your place. So let me remind you what your place is. You need to, rem- you need to be reminded that you're just clay. You're clay in God's hands. He's the potter. You're just a piece of clay. In fact, it's a really familiar image in Scripture, isn't it? I mean, when you go back in the Old Testament, you read the Old Testament, you see it there. You see it like in Job. You see it in Ezekiel. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in Jeremiah. In fact, let me just give you a few. You know, in Isaiah, for instance, we read things like this in chapter 29 and verse 16. God says, you turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Now this problem with arrogance goes back to the times of Isaiah, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Then in Isaiah 45 verse 19, Woe to him who strives with him who formed it, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making or your work has no handles? Again, in Isaiah 64 verse 8, but now, O Lord... You are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Probably though the most famous scene, most well-known scene is in Jeremiah chapter 
18, right? Where we read the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord arise and go down to the potter's house. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down, Isaiah or Jeremiah says, to the potter's house. And there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Oh, what's the point? What's, what's the point with Paul comparing us to, to clay, right? Well, it's this. Paul envisions all of humanity as one big, great lump of clay, right? But not innocent clay, not pure clay, not like, you know, refined clay. But as it's described in the Old Testament, one big mass of fallen, sinful clay. That's what we are. In terms of his sovereign work in salvation, what God is dealing with is the whole of fallen humanity as wretched, sinful, impure mass of clay. The whole of humanity, everybody born into this world from Adam is already lost and under condemnation. Isn't that true? Why? Because of Adam's sin and because of our own sin. And so in salvation, listen, God is not dealing with mankind as he was created by God in the garden. Good, very good. But as we have made ourselves through the fall, are you with me? In other words, other words, as clay... All of humanity is justly deserving of condemnation and eternal judgment. That's what we've earned. We were conceived in sin. We were born in sin. We daily practice sin. All of us have done what? Suppressed the truth and exchanged the glory of God for a lie. We worshiped and served the creature, ourselves, rather than the creator. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's our autobiography, or our biography rather. All of us before God's gracious, merciful intervention. Isn't that true? The whole world has made themselves guilty before God. Nobody can dispute that. At least nobody without, with any sense can dispute that. We all deserve God's wrath. In our natural condition, we're all just fallen clay. Right? But then the second thing, the second thing is this, is that God, just as the potter does with the clay, He has all rights over us to do with us as He pleases. Right? Right? I mean, imagine if your kid was in kindergarten art school or whatever they call that. Like when they do art in kindergarten and they make you like, you know, like my kids made ashtrays. <laughs> we don't smoke. But, you know, they brought it home. We made an ashtray today, Dad. Isn't it all? Yeah, that's great. Should have made a cup or something. We might have used it. All right. Imagine if while the kid's fashioning that clay, clay's like, hey, what are you doing with me? I would rather you fashion me into, you know, something else. What would happen? First of all, your kid would be scared to death, freaking out, Right. You have to pay for like years probably of therapy for your kid. But it's completely, it's, it's like just foolish. Like, no, that would never happen, right? It only happens in movies. And the reason is, is because clay has no voice. And clay really, it has no sense. And clay has no rights. The potter has all the rights. And it's the same with us as it regards God. The word right here, does not the potter have the right? It describes God's liberty, his freedom, his authority to fashion us however he pleases. He's the potter. He's the potter and he has the right to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor out of that lump of clay that is in front of him, doesn't he? Now, none of 
None of that clay inherently deserves to be made for an honorable use, does it? Does it? No, it doesn't. None of us deserves mercy, not one of us. We've got no claim on the mercy and the compassion of God. In fact, if God were to fashion every human being into, you know, a vessel of dishonor and leave us in that condition and condemn us all, God would be just to do it, would he not? He would. And if he chooses to make some out of this lump of clay into vessels of honor, if he, if he chooses to so work in a miraculous, merciful, compassionate manner and take this sinful piece of clay and fashion it and work it according to his sovereign will and make of it a vessel of honor, a vessel of beauty, a vessel that reflects the glory and the, and the, and the power of the potter. Does he not have the right to do that as well? He does. He's got the absolute right to sovereignly shape all the lumps of clay into whatever vessel pleases him, to whatever vessel serves his purpose in order to display his glory. And if he fashions some into vessels of honor, he's not doing injustice or violence to those who from that sinful lump of clay he leaves in their condition and fashions into a vessel of dishonor. Is he? No. He's just leaving them in the condition in which he found them. Now in our rights conscious society, you know, where it seems like the, the, the late, the, like the right that trumps all of the other bill, all the other rights in the bill of rights is I have the right not to be offended. I better not read the Bible. <laughs> In our rights-conscious society, somebody might say, well, what about my rights? God's rights and where my rights begin, right? You've heard that. You've heard people use that argument against you, maybe, or other human beings. Like, your rights end where my rights begin. So stay off my lawn, kids, right? What about that? Two things I would say. First, for someone to ask that question, to say that, what about my rights? clearly displays that he or she misunderstands what the sovereignty of God really means. That God's rights trump all other rights combined. But then second, I want you to think about this. Whatever rights any of us think we may have, if we ever even had any rights to begin with, whatever rights we think we may have, we forfeited through sin long ago. Long, long ago. So to speak of my rights before God is foolishness. If you think you've got like a claim on God's salvation, some right to it, that there's something in us that obligates God's God to be merciful and compassionate to us, then you don't understand what mercy is. It's not given to everyone. If it were given to everyone, it would cease to be what? Mercy. It would cease to be grace. For you to think that you deserve mercy, I would say in the famous words of Anselm, you have failed to consider the terrible weight of your sin. Paul's saying, look, man, you better understand something before you go popping off at God. What you better understand is this, is that there's an infinite qualitative difference between the potter and the clay that makes it foolish and wrong to even begin to criticize the choices of the potter. It's utter nonsense. It's foolishness to question the motives and the purposes of God with mankind. You're not God's equal. In fact, that's a concept that's even more absurd than a clay pot's being equal to the potter who molded it. At least the human potter and the clay are made of the same stuff. We have no right to question God and his sovereign rights and his 
freedom to show mercy to some and to leave others in their sin. He's got a complete right and a freedom to do just as he wills with this mass of humanity that has sinned against him. That's not innocent. That's Paul's argument. And it's a necessary rebuke to our human pride, isn't it? Isn't it? Now listen, I know. Discipline is never, you know, it's never, it's never enjoyable in the moment, right? But it yields the best fruit, fruit of holiness, righteousness. Now Paul could have just stopped right there, been like, you know what, that question's so out of order, I'm going to rebuke you and we're moving on. Thank God he doesn't. But thank God that Paul is a gracious man. That he's being led by the Holy Spirit, clearly. And led by the Holy Spirit now, he graciously restates God's purpose in his sovereign freedom in salvation And he does so with what is the deepest argument really in Scripture. It really is. Namely, that God's purpose in his sovereignty and his freedom in the salvation of man is to make known the riches of his glory before all of creation. God does what he does to make his glory known. He does what he does to make his glory known. In fact, Paul poses a question, really makes it as a statement. We'll get it in verses 22 through 24. He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, And to make known his power, desiring to to pour out his wrath and his power. What if he has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Here you are questioning God, Paul says. Here you are questioning God and the way that he acts as God. And and he says, let me tell you what's really going on here. What if I were to tell you, what if I were to say to you that God has patiently endured the wickedness of rebellious mankind, of hateful, rebellious, wicked, unrepentant mankind for as long as he has for a divine purpose that, that you're ignorant of. What if I told you that God has endured this for as long as he has so that he might make known the riches of his glory, the riches of his mercy and his compassion, the riches of his divine redemption that he's accomplished in his holy son, the glories of the gospel, the salvation that Christ has accomplished in his righteous representative life? of perfect holiness on our behalf and his substitutionary death, his wrath-bearing death, his resurrection from the dead, all for his vessels of mercy, all for his elect, all for those whom he has actively fashioned beforehand from eternity for his glory. What if I were to say to you that the God who has every right to destroy every single human being who has rebelled against him, which is everybody, has been patient. He has endured with patience their arrogance in order that he might reveal his glory in redeeming those he has chosen from before the foundation of the world. What would you say then? That's what Paul's getting at. Paul's dealing with sinful humanity is so that in everything he does, whether it is in his wrath poured out rightfully on those who deserve it, or it's his mercy to his elect, He does it all to reveal the riches of his glory, the riches of his glory for his vessels of mercy most fully fully and completely. In other words, in some way we cannot fully understand. God has got every right to immediately judge all the wicked, make his wrath and his power known right now, has restrained that rightful wrath, has restrained that rightful wrath against the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction 
so that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. In other words, in order that God might gather in his vessels of mercy, he patiently, he patiently endures with the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He doesn't just bring everything to a close right now. Why? Because there are still vessels of mercy to be plucked out of this clay of humanity. If you were to shut it all down right now, just come in his, in, his, in his judgment and judge all of those who remain in opposition to him, then what would happen is this. Those vessels of mercy yet to be redeemed by his blood, those who have been the objects of his divine love since before the creation, they would be left unredeemed. And God's not going to lose a single one of his people. Now, I want you to notice something here that's very important. I want you to notice this. Look at verse 22. And at that phrase, prepared for destruction. You see it? You see it? Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. That word that's translated there is the Greek word katarizo. It means this. It means to make something completely or fully qualified for something else. Okay? It means to make something fully and, and completely qualified for some, for something else, for some end, right? That's what the word katarizo means. In this case, God's wrath. These vessels are completely prepared and qualified for destruction. But here's the thing I want you to see. Who is it that made the vessels that way? Who is it that made the vessels that way? Because the contention of the dude in verse 19 is it's God's fault. God made those vessels that way. Who can resist his will? It's all God's fault, right? Right? But who actually has made the vessels that way? Well, in the Greek, and this is important, this verb is in the passive middle voice. In other words, it makes it a reflexive action verb. Now, why is that important? Here's why. What it means is this. It means that the vessels of wrath prepared themselves for destruction. These vessels are prepared by their own rebellion and their own sin for the wrath that is coming. In other words, here's the honest answer to the dishonest question of verse 19. We are the ones that are responsible for our sin, not God. We are the ones who are responsible for our lost condition, not God. God made mankind perfect. We ruined ourselves. We took that upon ourselves and we did it and we did it thoroughly. We did that. We made ourselves fit for destruction. God's not to blame. We are. In fact, John MacArthur captures this perfectly. He says, God is not the subject doing the preparing. There is the very clear sense in this use of the passive voice to relieve God of that responsibility and to put it fully on the shoulders of those who refuse to heed his word and believe in his son. In other words, listen to me. The vessels of wrath are not actively prepared by God to go to hell. They don't have to be. They've prepared themselves for that ultimate destiny, which they receive because they've rejected the truth about God and his righteousness that's available only in Christ. They did it. But then by contrast, notice Paul talks about vessels of mercy in verse 23, which he says he, God, has prepared beforehand for glory. God doesn't actively prepare men and women for hell. Their sin does that. But you know what? He must actively prepare men and women who are by nature children and vessels of wrath to be vessels of mercy and made for his glory. And that is exactly what this verse says he does. That is just what God does. 
The word for, for prepared here is the idea of eagerly preparing something beforehand for its purpose and its destination. In this case, to experience and to know the glory of God, right? And God did that according to the purpose of his will and according to the purpose of his glorious grace. Praise of his glorious grace. That's why Paul, you ever wonder why it is that Paul worships God like he does at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1? It's because of this. In Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3 through verse 8, the first part of verse 8, he says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is worship. Why? Who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. No longer vessels of destruction, now vessels of mercy. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And so we see that before the foundation of the world, Before God created the heavens and the earth, he prepared some men and some women for glory. He chose them in Christ before the foundation of the world to be his own. He wasn't obligated to show mercy to anybody, but he chose some who, like everyone else, by nature were children of wrath, and he chose them to be vessels of mercy in Christ. And he has made us to be that way by his sovereign choice. And what that means is this, is that if you're a Christian... If you, if you are one who sees and delights in the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ today, if you are authentic, you didn't get there on your own. You didn't get there on your own. There is no praise to you. You were shaped and you were molded by God's sovereign hand into a vessel of mercy to behold his glory. And therefore he gets all the glory and all the praise for making you so because it was an act of God's mercy from beginning to fruition. Amen. That's it. And would you complain against that? Will you argue against God? But there's more. And I don't want us to miss this. I don't want us to miss this. I want you to think about this. How do we really understand the divine glory displayed in God's mercy towards sinners like us? How do we really understand it? Let me ask you another question. How do you understand the difference between black and white? How do you understand it? Really understand it. If somebody says, well, black is dark and white is light, you can understand that a little bit. But the way that you really understand it is if somebody takes something that's white and something that's black and shows it to you, right? That's when you get, oh, now I get black. Oh, now I get white, right? You see it by comparison. Unless there's something with which to compare it, it's truly, it's hard to truly grasp how glorious God's mercy is and how worthy God is of our undivided worship, isn't it? But when we see God's sovereign mercy in the light of his sovereign judgment... When we see what we deserved and what God by his grace has given to us, that is when we can begin to comprehend the greatness and the wonder of the riches of God's glory shown to his people. And I would say to you this, we will never fully understand the wonder of God's mercy in this life. We'll never really get it. We will, we will really get it on that day when we see the fate of those who are the vessels of wrath, who have prepared themselves for destruction, experiencing the just wrath of the living God that we deserved, while we delight and behold 
the glory of heaven and the glory of our God because we are vessels of mercy created by his sovereign hand, by his mercy and his compassion for just that purpose. We will never understand the wonder of it until we behold the glory of his mercy juxtaposed against the glory of his judgment. And there's glory in both. I want you to hear me when I say that to you. There's glory in both. Some people get really uncomfortable to say, God shows His glory in expressing His wrath. But He does. God displays His glory in the display of His wrath. He displays His glory in His display of His hatred of sin and His holiness and His justice and His righteousness as He rightly condemns those who have been rebels against Him forever. And He shows His glory and His remarkable mercy and compassion to those who do not deserve it at all. We see the judgment. The judgment that we deserve. God's patient. He doesn't pour out His judgment now. He waits for the right day, for the right time. And we see the wonder and the glory of the redemption that He has accomplished for us. In His mercy, He's chosen and fashioned us for salvation out of that very same lump of sinful humanity that perishes. Called us by a sovereign, irresistible, effectual call without which we never would have responded to the gospel. He's given us saving faith in Christ. He's clothed us with His perfect righteousness. He's put His Spirit in us. He's opened His Word to our understanding. He has given us a renewed mind, renewed affections. He's made us His special possession, His sons and daughters, with Christ as our elder brother. He's made us joint heirs with Christ. And He's preparing us for the glory of heaven to behold His glory forever. And it's only against the backdrop of sin and rebellion and rejection and hardness of heart and the ultimate pouring out of God's fierce and holy and righteous wrath that we who have been prepared for glory by God's mercy see more clearly than we ever could before the riches of His glory for us. We who deserve the same fate as those vessels of wrath see the glory of God and His infinite mercy to us who have not received what we deserve. Thomas Schreiner says it like this. I think he expresses it well. He said, When the vessels of mercy perceive the fearsome wrath of God upon the disobedient and reflect on the fact that they deserve the same, then they appreciate in a deeper way the riches of God's glory and the grace lavished on them. The mercy of God is set forth in clarity against the backdrop of His wrath. God's determined. He's determined to reveal His powerful glory by saving people whom He's chosen. Even us, Paul says whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And listen, here's the thing he wants us to know, that God's purpose can't be defeated. It can't be derailed. He determines to show his glory, both in judgment and salvation, and he determines to display his glory in the redemption of the least likely, the Gentiles and the Jews, all of us. He redeems his people for the sake of his glory and our good, because what God says, he does. And that's what I want you to see here in these last few verses. We know that God has vessels of mercy, right, from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Scripture says that, both Jews and Gentiles. And here, Paul first takes the case of the Gentiles, and he writes this. Look at what he says in verses 25 and 26. And indeed, he says, in Hosea, and indeed, he says, in who is he? It's God. It's God who's speaking here, right? See what he does? He's equating Scripture with being the very Word of God, because it is. And here's God speaking. 
The God who does, the God, the God who's chosen his people, the God who fashions them, the God who sent his son to the world. This God that has given the Holy Spirit, he's the one who's speaking here through Hosea. And he says this, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Here's the thing. We know, if you're a, if you're a student of scripture, you know that Hosea was a prophet to whom? Well, originally he was a prophet to the 10 northern tribes of Israel, right? And so what is Paul doing taking words that were originally spoken to the 10 tribes of the nation, the northern 10 tribes of the nation of Israel in Hosea's day, and now applying them to Gentiles? Well, let's understand some things. First of all, as an apostle inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit, has the right to take this text from Hosea, an Old Testament prophet, to the ten northern tribes, a a nation that was apostate and immoral and and spiritually depraved and idolatrous and paganistic and materialistic and sexually immoral, right? And he, he, he can, he can't apply those words to the Gentiles led by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit, in a way that you and I cannot. Like we can't just cherry pick from the Old Testament. I know there are preachers who do that. Who go back and like they'll take the promises say to Abraham. Right? And then they'll cherry pick them. And they'll, they'll, you know, they'll promise them to their congregation. Man, you're going to be rich. You're going to have a bunch of flocks. You know, and, and what are flocks but cars really these days. And you're going to have a bunch of cars and all that. Right? That's not what he's doing. That's, that's not what he's doing. He's not misapplying Old Testament scripture. As is often done in churches today. In other words... What he's really doing here is it's a divinely inspired application of these ancient words that were once spoken to Israel to all of us Gentiles. And in fact, they fit us perfectly, don't they? Don't they? And this is who we were, right? We, we were once not God's people. We were once not God's beloved, not like the nation of Israel was, right? We weren't as Gentile. In fact, Paul says of us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, these words, he says, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember, you were at that time separated from Christ. And you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. And you had no hope and you were without God in the world. Like, that's what you were. That's what we were. Because of our sin, because we'd made ourselves that way. We, you know, we were, we were not God's people. We weren't beloved. And yet, because of his mercy and his compassion towards us, because... Ephesians 2.13, now in Christ Jesus, you once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, God calls those who were once not his people, what? My people. Now, Gentile Christians who were once not beloved are now beloved. And God has sought out and he's seeking out his vessels of mercy among the Gentiles. And in the very place, he says, which was said of them, you are not my people. What's that place? That place is the place of enmity and, and the place of forsakenness and the place of separation and in the place of wrath. God finds us in that place, that place of rebellion and enmity and forsakenness and separation and wrath and rebellion against him. And in that very place, God says, no. You're not that anymore. You're not a vessel of wrath anymore. You are my vessel of mercy. You have been since before the foundation of the world. You just didn't know it, but now you do. You're mine. You belong to me. You are the sons of the living God. You are my people. And only God can make us so. We couldn't make ourselves so. Only God can do such a marvelous work of making sinful clay a vessel of mercy. And there's nothing that will prevent 
the riches of his glory for his vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. There's nothing that will stop full display of God's glory. And then Paul turns to the case of the chosen people of Israel, right? And he says, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What's he saying there? Well, he's saying, look, God hasn't forsaken and forgotten all of Israel. He's going to save a remnant just as he promised, right? The Jews, it's not that they're going to, there's going to be a remnant to save because they deserved it. They don't. They deserved his judgment, just like we all do. As a whole, they were steep. Remember, I mean, if you've been here on Wednesday night, you know what's true of the nation of Judah to which, to which Isaiah preached. You know that they were steeped in self-righteousness and idolatry. You know that they were covenant breakers. You know that they were God rejectors. In fact, they were no better than the Gentiles around them. No better than Sodom and Gomorrah, according to Isaiah. Guilty of the very same kinds of sin. And in fact, they were no different years later when Christ came. They demonstrated their true spiritual condition in their hatred and their rejection of him who was their Messiah, right? And just as in Isaiah's day, if God did not intervene, God did not leave them offspring by his grace, if he did not form a remnant by his mercy, all of Israel would have become like Sodom and and Gomorrah. They would have been utterly desolate. They would have been utterly destroyed, utterly exterminated, completely forgotten. But God has a remnant and he's saving them right now. He's got a remnant chosen by his mercy, saved by grace for the display of the riches of his glory for his vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory. He's doing all that he's doing for his glory. Every bit of it, saving and condemning for his glory. In fact, I want you to see this, beloved. It always comes back to this theme. All that God does, his sovereign freedom, the way that God acts, what he, how he acts towards us, how he acts towards others. Listen, it all comes back to the same theme. It always comes back to the glory of God, to the God's glory being displayed, to God's glory being recognized, God's glory in all things, right? The chief end of God in this world, his chief purpose in this world and in the world to come, beloved, is to manifest what? His glory. That's it. Now I'm going to say something that, that may be hard for our modern ears to hear. We are not ultimate in this universe. We're not ultimate in this universe. Your happiness is not the ultimate thing in this universe. Your glory, not the ultimate thing. Your satisfaction, not the ultimate thing. Your wishes, your desires, what seems best to you. We're not ultimate in this universe. Beloved, if we were, then we would be the rightful objects of worship, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't we? Wouldn't we? No, listen to me. Humanity exists for the purpose of displaying the ultimate, which is God's glory. God's glory, the, 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 the glory of His holiness and His justice and His righteousness, it's displayed in His just wrath against unrepentant sinners who have made themselves fit for destruction by their own sin. And it is displayed in His sovereign choice to show mercy and compassion to some who do not deserve it and to save them from the wrath to come. But make no mistake, God is never unjust in the display of His glory. Never. If anybody's lost, listen to me. If anybody is lost, it is because of his or her own sin and rebellion against God. It's not God's fault. And if anyone is saved, it's entirely because of God's mercy and grace and not because of his or her merit. 
And both reveal the greatness and the majesty of God's glory. Both of these things, his wrath, his mercy, magnify the glory of the living God. So what do we say to this? I would say this. First of all, if we're Christians, if we tasted the grace and the mercy of God, if we've been fashioned as vessels of mercy out of a sinful lump of humanity, then what this text ought to do in us as we think about God's election and why it is that we're saved and other people are not is to make us rejoice in God's mercy to us, an undeserving lot. Shouldn't it? We don't deserve to be Christians. We don't deserve to be chosen or called or saved or transformed or heaven bound. We don't deserve any of that. It's all God's mercy and all of it's undeserved. And that ought to create with us, within us a humility and a gratitude and a thankfulness and a deep worship and a surrenderedness of our lives to God that we have received anything good, any forgiveness, any acceptance with God, any glimpse of His glory, any hope of everlasting joy. All of it is of His mercy. It ought to move us to share with other, other people the only hope of sinners, which is the mercy and the grace of God. You didn't know you were an object of God's mercy until he opened your eyes to behold it, did you? You had no idea that you were a child of God until God changed your heart, opened your blinded eyes, and gave you a heart to believe in Christ, right? And how did he do that? He did that by mercy, didn't he? Didn't he? And mercy received ought to be mercy shared. You don't know who's elect out there. You have no idea who is a vessel of, of, of God's mercy right now masquerading as a vessel of wrath. You have no idea. But you know how you find out? You preach the gospel. You share the gospel of Jesus Christ. You invite people to believe and to embrace the mercy of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it becomes evident who are vessels of wrath and who are vessels of mercy created beforehand by God for glory. Understanding God's election ought not make you be quiet. If you're quiet in understanding God's election, that means you haven't gotten it yet. The greatest evangelist in history, the greatest, most impactful evangelist and missionaries in history, guess what? Believed in the election, the sovereign election and sovereign freedom of God. That's why they were willing to go places like China. That's why they were willing to go to places in the middle of nowhere. Because they believed the truth that out of every nation, tribe, and tongue, God had chosen for himself a people. He had created for himself vessels of mercy out of that sinful lump of clay. And it was up to us, up to them, to go and preach the gospel and find those things, find those people. It ought to make us with the psalmist to say these words. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations for your steadfast love, your covenant love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. Let me tell you what it also ought to do, this text. Beloved, it ought to stir up gratitude in our hearts and awe and wonder in our hearts. I just want to say this. We ought never become so accustomed to God's mercy that we take it for granted, beloved. Never let us so undervalue His mercy as to think it is undeserved. I'm sorry, to think that it is deserved because it isn't. Let us, I'm going to say that again. Let us know so, let us never so undervalue His mercy as to think it is deserved because it isn't. Let me tell you what happens, and I've seen this in Christians who, who become less than amazed and in awe of the grace and the mercy of God to them. I find them to become quick 
to be infatuated with the things of the world and bored with the things of God. I find them to become quick to excuse, abandoning the Lord's day, or, you know, batting 500. Two out of four Sundays isn't bad, right? I, I see them become careless with the Lord's day. I see them before long become so enamored with the things of the world that they start thinking like the world and before long they start acting just like the world. Beloved, never never let us grow accustomed or take for granted the mercy of God to us. Instead, may the good news that God has saved you from sin and judgment by His great love and mercy cause your heart to rejoice and your soul to be flooded with gratitude and faithfulness to Him. Well, what about... Those of us who are in this room who aren't in Christ, who haven't believed and, 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 and haven't received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you might hear these words and, and think to yourself, well, God only gives mercy to some. He only saves some. If that's so, what hope is there for me? I would say to you this, that if God saves some by His mercy, why not you? Why not you? Why not you? Cry out to Him for mercy. Cry out to Him to save you. Look, if you would have God's mercy, then come to the place where God's mercy is dispensed. Come to Christ. If you'd be delivered from the just wrath that you deserve for your sins, don't complain or be confused or wrestle against the way that God saves sinners or against His sovereign grace, but just come to the fount of all saving blessings. Come to Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. Confess your rebellion against God. Believe that Christ has lived the righteous life that you failed to live, that He died on the cross... To, to pay the penalty of your sins and endure the wrath of God that you deserve and that he rose victoriously on the third day. Don't complain against the sovereign mercy of God or fear. There's only a few I might not be in. Look, cry out to him to be merciful to you, a sinner, because God delights to show mercy. He loves it. It's one of his favorite things to do. Show mercy. Why not to you? I want to close with these words from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, if we really want to know something about the glory of God, And we must look at him as he manifests and shows his mercy to those upon whom he will show mercy. The salvation of a single soul is the most wonderful thing that God has ever done. He has surpassed and eclipsed everything. All his ways are matchless, godlike and divine. The creation, the providence, the manifestation of his power, the manifestation of his wrath. All these things are manifestations of the glory of God. But they are nothing when you put them beside what God has done and the redemption of sinful man. Amen. He's right. And so we say glory to God for his mercy to save undeserving sinners. Glory to God for his sovereign grace to choose to redeem any and to set his saving love upon undeserving sinners. Glory to God that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Glory to God for his mercy to call undeserving sinners to saving faith in his son. Glory to God for his mercy in preparing undeserving sinners to be vessels of mercy for the eternal glories of heaven. All glory to God alone. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, as we consider the things that we've heard today, as we consider this word, this glorious word in Romans 9, Father, I pray that you would move our hearts to embrace the truth 
Father, and to do it with a ferocity and with a, with a fierceness and with, a, with just a desire, Lord God, to lay hold of your truth and never let go. I'm praying, Father, for those that are in this room that have never come to saving faith in Christ. They've never really confessed their sins and confessed their rebellion against you, seen the, 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 the judgment that they deserve, and Lord God, beheld with with eyes of faith the life that Christ has lived in their behalf, the death that he's died, and his resurrection from the dead to pay the penalty of our sins and to bring justification to sinners. I pray, Father, for those that are in this room that are not yet saved, you would call them by your irresistible calling and that you would bring them to faith in Christ. And I'm praying for believers here this morning. God, I'm praying that we would not wrestle against who you reveal yourself to be in your word. That even if we can't fully understand it, we might say to you, Lord, I don't understand it, but I believe it because it is true. It is your word and you are a faithful God. I pray that we would be a people that would not take your mercy for granted. I pray that we would be a people who would be grateful for all that you have given and all that you have done. Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts to create in us a greater heart and a greater degree of worship than ever before. Let us be transformed, Lord God, by the words, by the truth, by the the Holy Spirit-inspired word of the living God that we have heard today. We give you all glory and all praise in Jesus' name. Amen.